investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 62 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is Friday, April 10th, 2020. A few really, really cool things happening in the markets this week that we wanted to discuss. Firstly, the Fed announced an unprecedented $2.4 trillion stimulus package that includes loans to support local businesses and governments. We're going to discuss the implications of this massive stimulus. And yes, it involves the market going up last week. Airbnb, they're in trouble as they withdrew their IPO plans and they completed a highly distressed financing. We're going to talk about the details on that financing and whether the company will be able to survive in the age of coronavirus. Not all heroes wear capes. Jack Dorsey pledged $1 billion of his net worth in a fight to find a coronavirus cure. And lastly, we're going to discuss March factor performance. Value sucked win, but momentum surged. We're going to chat about the numbers there. But for now... We really got to touch on what the Fed is up to. They announced this massive $2.3 trillion uh, loan program, really, to help kickstart the U.S. economy. Uh, this is their uh, second round of stimulus that the Federal Reserve unveiled. This latest one, some of the details, so $2.3 trillion. $600 billion of which is loans directly to small and medium-sized businesses, another half trillion going into local governments, I believe specifically by buying municipal bonds. And some of these local governments have, have really just been decimated because they've seen tax re- revenues just collapse unemployment rising, businesses are shutting under these social distancing rules. But I mean, their costs are always there, right? The other thing is um, what the Fed's doing with this capital and how they're how they're getting that into the hands of businesses and governments. Well, a lot of that involves open market purchases of various securities. Specifically, uh, they're expanding what they can buy. Historically, they're quantitative easing. They're buying mortgage-backed securities and Treasury securities, treasury bonds, treasury bills issued by the U.S. government. However, now they're going way outside of their previous mandate, such that um, we spoke about a couple weeks ago how they could now start buying corporate bond ETFs. They expanded that even more such that now they can buy municipal bonds. They can buy high yield bonds. That's right. Junk bonds and even junk bond ETFs. Now, A note on the junk bond purchases, Uh, specifically, they indicated that they would buy bonds of, quote, fallen angel companies. Now, what fallen angel uh, bonds are? They're basically junk bonds, non-investment grade bonds that were previously investment grade but got downgraded over this latest recession. So those are some of the details. Like one example would be Ford. And if we look at the market action on Friday, Ford's bonds just absolutely surged on this news and and ultimately the fed's program here they're looking to 
pump in support as much as $850 billion into the credit markets. And in terms of the amount of fallen angel bonds expected this year, well, analysts at Citigroup expect about two to $300 billion of coming downgrades, that is bonds that were rated investment grade, but will be getting downgraded to junk status this year, which is basically double the prior record from 2002. And some market action on these moves from the Fed, obviously risk assets, investors loving it. So the implications are, at least in the near term, security prices are going up. If we look at the junk bond ETF, it rallied, what, 7% on Friday. So a massive rally, stocks, bonds, junk bonds, corporate bonds, municipal bonds, everything getting bid up. So certainly it has changed sentiment pretty dramatically when you have this buyer of last resort with seemingly unlimited money, $2.4 trillion coming into the market from the Federal Reserve. Investors certainly loving that liquidity coming into the market. What are your thoughts on that? What do you think the implications are from this pretty much unprecedented stimulus? Yeah, the implications really, I mean, it's just a very unique scenario where I guess this is what happens when interest rates are at, you know, the zero bound. They have limited options in terms of, you know, they can't just lower interest rates and have the same effect. It's kind of like pushing on a string. And so they have to do things like this. And so it's it's very interesting scenario where you know, a good, a really good argument could be made that investors in over leveraged companies, you know, taking unjustified risks are being unjustly rewarded um, with this action by the Fed. Well, the other um, complaint are companies that have executed a significant amount of share buyback over the past 10 yes. years. There's been a substantial increase in share repurchases. And now they're going out hat in hand to the government saying, oh, we have no money, we have no liquidity, we're gonna have to fire everyone and go bankrupt. Yeah, and that's just not at all what happens in a chapter 11. I shouldn't say not at all. Um, because some some businesses do go bust and actually do leave an industry. But I guess the airlines are a good example of, you know, if they go through Chapter 11, yes, equity equity holders likely get wiped out, but the assets themselves still do have value and will still be operational. There still will be airlines. It's just a matter of who owns these. And I, I guess I'd go back to this week, Shamath uh, Palpatia, from Social Capital, he actually had a really good interview. I believe it was on MSNBC, but he talked about how companies should be allowed to fail. Uh, and just because a company fails doesn't necessarily mean that it won't exist, exactly like I just mentioned. Yeah, and by failure, mean, you mean bankruptcy, which implies generally a restructuring, not a liquidation, but and restructuring is it typically involves conversion of debt into equity. And so the company reorganizes and comes out brand new with significantly fewer liabilities, uh, better capitalized to, uh, you know, really start executing again. So it's really just a temporary thing. Typically, they retain most, if not all employees. And then, you know, it's mostly the equity holders, the stockholders, and and uh, sometimes the bondholders who take a hit, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, like you'd mentioned, it's, it's a short-term situation where it's really just a matter of the owner of the business it's it of who owns the business after they go through the restructuring so really like this is a situation where 
as an investor, I very much like these moves by the Fed. They bring up risk a- risk assets, uh, as you had mentioned. So for, as a fund, you know, working at an investment fund, that is a very good thing for any investor. But in this situation, it's just trying to separate, you know, I guess my own views as an investor with my views of you know how a capitalistic society should work um and this being great for investors but in terms of a capitalistic society capitalism really only works if companies are allowed to fail yeah if there is if you can't fail as a company if you can just you know do share buybacks which i, I have no absolutely no problem with buybacks we, um, we love buying debt absolutely absolutely it's part of our shareholder yield that we get as investors along with dividends but using that capital, leveraging yourself to do buybacks, and then coming to the to the government looking for a bailout, I have a very big problem with that. And so that's where I find it's very interesting that you've seen such support uh, in the U.S. Well, for this sort of policy from conservatives, which you know typically are more have a more libertarian bent, and it's basically socializing a lot of the industries as the U.S. will the U.S. Fed will become a creditor for a lot of different companies. Yeah, I think the issue is there's a lot of mixed feelings. I see a lot of anger from people. And so the the government's in a really tricky spot here. Let's look like number one, exactly what is going on? Well, obviously, there's the coronavirus pandemic. And in order to protect society, protect largely elderly, the most vulnerable, the government had to basically shut down nearly every business, right? And most businesses, if they're not up and running, their costs don't necessarily go away. And so there's this government mandated shutdown. And and if that's the case, it's this government mandated uh, recession. And if you're a business, then it makes sense to, you know, want compensation from the government because they did force this shutdown. So that's one thing, and you can view it from that side. You know, it's fine bailing out companies. It's not their fault. It's, you know, the government who's doing this. We're all kind of uh, getting through this together, and the government certainly should stimulate to get us through this sort of stopgap period until the coronavirus sort of uh, simmers down and we can get it under control, whether through social distancing, uh, measures such as that, or we we finally get uh, effective treatments and vaccines. So that's one thing. But on the other hand, you have highly leveraged private equity companies, extremely wealthy, you know, private equity partnership the guys who run these firms, where they they do leverage buyouts, the resulting company takes on a significant amount of debt by a significant, we're talking about six to seven times EBITDA, such that unless everything goes perfectly smoothly, those companies are at high risk of going bankrupt. And the reason that private equity companies put on vast amounts of debt leverage in their portfolio companies is to make themselves more money. So you can view it out of the uh, my microscope or the the viewpoint of of greed such that they're getting too greedy using too much debt such that if there's a rocky time period like right now those companies immediately run into liquidity issues right and now they have to go hat in hand to the government oh you know we're in trouble we can't we can't make one month with no revenue uh, bail us out. So I think there's a lot of negative sentiment from that perspective. It's basically backstopping companies that took way too much risk for investors that were too greedy. Because when you take when you take on that much leverage, it's basically a trade-off. You're taking on more risk to generate 
higher returns. And imagine if you're an investor, if you could lever up your own portfolio through your margin account and all of a sudden things go down, you start getting margin calls, you know, is the government going to be there to bail you out when you get a margin call? I don't think so. So so many people upset that, um, you know, these very wealthy private equity individuals and firms are getting bailed out here. And then you look at the other side of the coin, which is the human impact. Uh, clearly, if we look at the unemployment numbers, which are just absolutely dismal, U.S. came out with um, unemployment claims last week, 6.6 million in one week, which is just a massive record. Typically, it's a small fraction of that. And that 6.6 million million or 16 million over three weeks, which is also insane. Yeah, 17 million since the coronavirus pandemic shut down vast swaths of the economy. And then you look up in Canada, Canada posted record breaking 1 million jobs lost in March and the unemployment rate soared to 7.8%. And so you have this concern from society, from people saying, you know, is it is it really being allocated all these stimulus funds to the right people? But then the government needs to balance that timeliness. They can't debate over this for months and months because then people will, you know, people are suffering every single day, wondering how they're going to make rent, how they're going to make their uh, mortgage payment, or you know, buy food to feed their families, and and businesses are at the risk of going bankrupt. So they really need to to get the stimulus done as quickly as possible and really didn't have time to necessarily iron out all the details. So it's somewhat controversial, but ultimately a good thing, great thing for businesses, great thing for individuals, and most importantly for uh, at least what we're talking about here, which uh, which are markets, certainly great for risk assets. And we'll leave it at that. Um, just massive stimul- stimulation going on from governments globally. Uh, the Fed's $2.3 trillion stimulus package just the latest. But this whole coronavirus pandemic has hit certain companies harder than others. Uh, One of which was WeWork, which we discussed last week on the podcast. This week, we're talking about Airbnb, which has been hit especially hard. And they've had they basically went from, you know, peak to valley over the past three months. 2020 was supposed to be Airbnb's year. It was going to be the hottest IPO of the year at a valuation of more than $50 billion. But of course, with the coronavirus, they suffered a dramatic setback that's put their mere existence potentially in jeopardy. Like, this virus completely messes up their entire business model, which relies on travel, which relies on people renting other people's space to stay in. I'm a pretty heavy user of it when I'm traveling. I really like it, prefer it over a hotel most of the time. But with no people traveling, with people social distancing and staying at home, this led to a dramatic decline. Uh, you know, I've heard upwards of 90% decline in revenue, spiraling losses. They're expected to lose over $1 billion in just the first six months of 2020, which has created liquidity issues. And by liquidity means they're running out of money. So in order to address that liquidity problem, they tapped private equity firms Silver Lake and Sixth Street Partners for a rescue 
financing package. This included a $1 billion loan at a pretty serious rate of LIBOR plus 10%. What LIBOR is, is it's basically a floating rate in which banks lend against. They'll lend uh, to companies at a spread above LIBOR. If you're a, a good quality company, typically it's you know LIBOR plus 1% or 2%, but Airbnb is getting LIBOR plus 10%, which is uh, very, very steep and indicative of the dire straits that they were in. But in addition to that $1 billion loan, they had to offer these private equity firms uh, additional equity warrant kickers struck at a fraction of its previous valuation. So these equity warrants, I believe, are uh, issued at an $18.18 billion strike price. So this is a pretty substantial discount to the proposed IPO, which is clearly off the table now. And uh, that's about half of their latest private funding valuation in 2017. So certainly a highly distressed financing at Airbnb. Their bookings are down, I think in China, up to 96% uh, in January. And you see that uh, come into North America. I believe their U.S. bookings are down over 80%. Um, so certainly tough times for Airbnb. What are your thoughts on the company? Are they going to survive? You know, what do you think the future holds for Airbnb? I mean, I, I do think that they will survive. I, I guess it's similar to the to the last question of, of who will be the owners in this situation. Yeah. Investor support. They, yeah. Um, it, who, who will be the owners in this situation? So um, Silver Lake, they're involved in this in this transaction, providing that billion dollars of financing. Uh, you you had mentioned the terms, you know, really at a distressed financing level. Um, specifically with Silver Lake, I just wanted to mention that um, Lucinda Shen, the author of Term Sheet by uh, Fortune magazine, uh, asked this week if. Silver Lake is the coronavirus era Warren Buffett. As in the great global financial crisis, Buffett did strike some very favorable deals with some of the banks um, for preps and warrants. And so in this situation, you have silver where Warren Buffett really has been quite, quite quiet. Yeah, where has Warren been? Like everyone's been expecting him to be... uh making deals, doing deals, rescuing companies, landing that elephant that he's been looking for, that massive acquisition that he's been looking to do for the past 10 years. And what, he's got $120 billion cash or more. So where's he been? We haven't seen anything from him except some stock sales, which has really yeah, shocked yeah, investors. Sales. Yeah, from selling some of the airlines, uh, his, his sales of Delta. Um, were have been talked about over the last week, which is um, you know not his typical move um, in in the midst of a crisis. Um, but yeah, so in terms of Silver Lake, she pointed out how in addition to this deal with a distressed Airbnb, how they had come to the rescue to for Twitter um, while they were funding fending off their activist investor Elliott Management. Um, I believe they came to an, a deal on in early March. This billion-dollar financing that they, they had brought for Twitter enabled them to en- enact a $2 billion share repurchase program to uh, appease Elliott. And then also in early March, um, during the midst of the crisis, uh, they led a funding round for Google's self-driving car unit, Waymo, for over $2 billion. And I will note that there was a little bit of uh, Canadian flair in that deal as well with uh, CPPIB, uh, Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board, as well as Magnin 
International were involved in that financing. But really just an interesting situation where Silver Lake, a private equity player, has made themselves involved in some of these distressed situations. As well, I would like to compare this financing, so Airbnb's financing, and compare it to Slack's. Now, it's not a perfect comparable as one is public and one is private, um, as in a in a private or in a public deal, you do have for any convertible deal, a lot of the flow will be taken on by convertible arbitragers. But in this situation, it's just a, a, a real tale of the sentiment between Airbnb and Slack, which is um, one of the main companies that has been the beneficiary of the work from home investment trade. Um, but in the in Slack situation, they issued $750 million worth of converts in the last week uh, that will pay 0.5% interest compared to the over 10% interest rate that Airbnb will pay, and then will convert at a premium valuation uh, as opposed to Airbnb's, which I believe you had mentioned was stri- would be strike at seven, a $17 billion valuation compared to their um, most recent internal valuation of $26 billion. Uh, at Airbnb. So just a tale of, of how the coronavirus epidemic or pandemic has affected two different uh, very high profile startup companies. Certainly. And it's a good point that you make about sentiment, because what the past six months have shown, sentiment can absolutely turn on a dime. If we go back to last summer, WeWork was the talk of the town, talking about 80 to $100 billion IPO. As we know, that failed dramatically. And now WeWork's really on the rope. Uh, their bonds are trading at 36 cents on the dollar. There's a high probability that they go bankrupt and the equity's worth zero. Now you're seeing some something similar with Airbnb, talking about a $50 billion uh, valuation in its IPO, the, the talk of the town, hottest IPO of the year, to highly distressed financing with their existence and future in doubt as, as a going concern. So it's really important... Uh, you know, if if you're reliant on capital market to fund your business, and then that really increases or it increases risk for investors because if sentiment flip, then uh, things can get very bad very quickly, and equity values can decline dramatically. So it's great for profitable companies because they can make it through without reliant relying on capital markets for additional financing. But when they are reliant, then um, a mistiming such as this Airbnb just waited too long to go public and it costed them dearly. Uh, Had they gone public a bit earlier, they would have had significant amount of liquidity, no need to do a distressed financing. But unfortunately, that did not happen. My thoughts, I think they'll survive. Uh, The company indicated they have a capital cushion of about 4 billion. They do have investors willing to support them, albeit very, very high uh, expected uh, financing terms, pretty punitive terms there. However, uh, once we get through coronavirus, it, it believe, I believe they do have a valid business model. Not sure if the same thing can be said for WeWork, which we've uh, talked about significantly. Uh, but another thing you, you discussed was um, uh, what happened with Twitter. One thing that I wanted to mention is Twitter's CEO. Yeah, for sure, we are a bit hard on his uh, part-time gig between Twitter and Square with respect to the recent uh, activist involvement by hedge fund Elliott Management at Twitter. 
However, what he did this week, really, really, we got to give him kudos for. What he did was he pledged $1 billion of his Square stock. That represents over a quarter of his net worth, about 28% of his net worth, $1 billion he pledged to help fund the coronavirus relief effort. So kudos to him. Massive, massive news for... Um, Everyone is affected by this, and that capital can certainly fund a lot of research and development efforts into vaccines, treatments, medical equipment. You know, this will definitely save a lot of lives. So my hat's off to him there. He indicated once this pandemic is resolved, which it will be at some point in time, this money will go to focus on improving girls' health and education in addition to advancing universal basic income. In addition to that, I just wanted to give a shout-out uh, to other basically very successful entrepreneurs, wealthy individuals that have donated money to help solve this coronavirus pandemic. Jeff Bezos donated $100 million to Feeding America. Michael and Susan Dell donated $100 million to global relief efforts. And then Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation pledged a similar amounts. They're really trying to develop a vaccine uh, in addition to other treatment efforts. So certainly people stepping up to the plate here and Jack Dorsey doing it bigger than anyone. So hats off to him. Pretty fantastic news in my opinion. Yeah, so we were a little bit critical of Jack Dorsey um, a while back on the podcast when we were discussing Elliott Management's uh, activist campaign on Twitter, um, where they were actually calling for him to be fired as CEO. And I also would say that I don't find myself agreeing with Dorsey on a lot of his views uh, necessarily. But in this situation, as you had mentioned, like this is an unambiguously good thing that he did. There's not many people so far that have been willing to stake uh, a very large portion of their net worth towards combating COVID-19. Uh, in this instance, I believe it's about 28% of his net worth. Um, you did mention a few others that have uh, that have staked, you know, multi-million in the hundreds of millions of dollars towards the combating COVID-19. But, you know, really not at this scale and not at this portion of of their net worth, um, you know, even you know, if you you or I were to <laughs> stake a large port, a large portion of our net worth, wouldn't come nearly uh, <laughs> at nearly as much scale as Jack Dorsey's. So, really, hats off to him. This is just a, a really great move and something that, as I believe you had mentioned, he has done in the past as well. He has been quite charitable um, with the money that he has made as a very successful founder in the tech industry. Yeah, sorry, Jack. We love you, bro. Uh, so what happened in March? Crazy, crazy market environment. We had record VIX uh, north of 85 and had never even hit that in the great financial crisis 2008 2009 so it hit 85 on march 18th and the vix is the fear index so really just indicative of the massive volatility stocks plummeting during the month it suffered one of the largest monthly losses on record on march 16th the dow jones fell nearly 13 percent with uh, makes it the largest drop of all time aside from Black Monday 1987. They're now calling that Black Thursday, March 16th, when the Dow dropped about 13%. So certainly a very skittish environment, but what we're talking about here is multi-factor long-short investing. So we look at factors such as value, quality, price momentum, operating momentum, and trend. 
And when we talk about it in a long and short sense, you're basically market neutral, where you buy top decile stocks on that factor, and then you short the bottom decile, i.e. the worst ranking stocks on that factor. And we saw some pretty interesting results and multi-factor long short investing held up quite well given just the crazy environment. So all things considered, multi-factor long short in the US was actually up 2.5% in March and down 3.2% uh, in Canada, so up 2.5% in the US last week on a North American basis, pretty balanced. And what we saw, basically a continuation of the trend, value just got absolutely crushed, uh, especially in Canada, the long leg of the long short value trade. By mid-March, Canadian value stocks were down nearly 50%, that's 50%, got absolutely smoked, while the most expensive, the most overvalued stocks were only down about 15 But uh, long short value in Canada down 20%. Clearly the worst factor, not nearly as bad as in the US down 5%. Quality did poorly, but not as poorly as value. You look at the other side of the coin, price momentum absolutely killed it where your longs dramatically outperformed your shorts by double digit percentages, nearly 18% in Canada and 12% in the US. You had really good performance out of both operating momentum and trend as well. So uh, by and large, good performance from multi-factor long shorts in an extremely tough month, highly volatile month for long only investors, which really just shows you the strength of uncorrelated investment strategies, specifically including some shorts in your portfolio and having that market neutral bent, it can really bail you out uh, during massive bear markets, which we just had in March. Um, so certainly very interesting price action. Do you have any thoughts on what happened there? Yeah, no, not too many, not not any distinct thoughts uh, on my side. I guess just a question on the value factor over the past month is there's obviously was quite a big difference between how the value factor performed in the US versus Canada. Do you have any idea why it would have been, you know, as I guess, the greater impact in Canada versus the US? Yeah, who knows? Perhaps uh, in the Canadian markets, there's more uh, cheap energy stocks. Uh, if we go to the US, you know, S&P 500, and we look at securities outside the S&P 500 for our multi-factor models. However, this is just indicative of the market composition of the US versus Canada. At one point, uh, you know, Canada had north of 30% of the index made up of energy names, I believe 25 to 30%. And uh, the latest I've read, the S&P 500 had maybe 2 to 3%. So it's a really big uh, divergence in composition of the equities in each market. Historically, Canada more resource-focused, U.S. more financials and technology-focused. So perhaps that's it. I haven't really drilled down into the specific sectors, but as we know in March, energy getting absolutely destroyed, uh, oil and gas stocks got, getting crushed after the massive drawdown and uh, price war in the oil market. So that's something to consider uh, on that side of, of things there. But other than that, that's basically all I had to say about multi-factor and market performance in March. Uh, we'll wrap things up here. So thanks, everyone, for checking out this episode of the Absolute Return podcast. If you enjoyed it, please check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. And you can definitely follow us on Twitter. My handle is at Julian Klamochko. That's K-L-Y-M-O-C-H-K-O. And Mike, your handle is? 
It is M underscore Kesslering. So we had a big week in the market last week. I think the S&P was at, what, 11%, basically one of the best weeks in a very, very long time, many decades. So hopefully for investors, that can continue. We're certainly think, seeing things starting to normalize. The VIX has come down to about 45, which is still quite extreme. We view anything above 30 on the VIX as being an extreme reading. Historically, um, in calm environments, it's more around 15. So we'll seek to see that further come down, more positive data coming out of uh, the COVID-19 cases globally, specifically in the US. But until next week, we wish you the best in your investing, trading, short selling, arbitraging, and we'll chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.